Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. had a great weekend uh, and we hope that the hurricane quickly fizzles out for our Florida friends. Uh, if, if you hear my desk collapse or com- computer uh, blow up, you know David Brody is the guest and he's got all this information just piled all over the desk. I can barely see the screen. But um, you know, uh, just uh, a few weeks ago, you heard him on Coast to Coast, which was prep for a high-profile show like Nightlight. Um, yeah, we'll be covering his last two novels, uh, Sheba's Revenge and The Serpent Oracle, and segue into several of his other books. Uh, so I think this would be another career retrospective show of his research into out-of-place artifacts in America. And you can learn more about Dave by going to his website, davidbrodybooks.com. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Good evening, Mark. Great to be with you again. Like you said, uh, that was just a, uh amateur hour for this big event here tonight. This This is the big time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Post to post is nothing compared to your show. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, t- 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 yeah. T- thank you. You know, I'll, I'll, we'll we'll put that. Have to put that. Uh, isolate that little clip and uh, uh, start e- each of the uh, my shows with that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we. Uh, you know, probably I, I. I don't know. We start off with. Uh, Maybe the Serpent Oracle, and that's the most recent one, and I think we can just kind of weave a lot of these artifacts and ideas into some of your earlier books and uh, maybe read a few uh, passages from some other ones and uh, make for uh, some really uh, fascinating points for the uh, listeners, um, 
and, and I think we're you know, going to have a really uh, exciting show tonight. Um, but uh, okay, so you know, we just look at the title of your last book, uh, the Serpent Oracle. Uh, okay, so there's like since you're you know on with us on a regular basis, uh, you probably realize uh, okay, there's probably something about snake symbolism uh, throughout world religions. So um, sounds like a pretty easy starting point. Uh, so well, yeah, that, that's that's what it is. I mean, that was really it. Really, was a very sort of simple observation that I had one day, which was that you know we in modern times we are taught that the the snake, that the serpent, is a symbol of evil. That you know the de- mm-hmm. it's the devil's tool. Um, but as I've done research over the past you know fifteen years, looking at all this this stuff, more and more I came to realize that in ancient times people worshipped the snake, worship the serpent as a symbol of of wisdom and of maybe being the tool of God, not the tool of the devil and of uh, uh, recre- of uh, rebirth and and, and so, mm-hmm. you know, how how did, well, at one point was a, uh, something of reverence turn into something um, that we now fear and, and abhor and why is that? And, and going back in time, what was it about the snark, the snake and the serpent that made the ancient peoples worship it? I mean, I was just, you know, that kind of, those kinds of questions are the kinds of things that I love. I love to go down a rabbit hole and, 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 and crawl around down there and try to figure it out. So that was, like you said, it was a very simple question to begin with. What's, what's up with the snake? You know, why, why did it go from, from good to evil? All right. And, and you, know, you you give us a lot of examples the cobra in egypt uh the, the um uh the the, the staircase at, at, uh at chichen itza is that right in in mexico uh no the, it's not, not chichen itza it's in um uh Cucuban. so it's um uh, it's that's not chichen itza but uh no I'll, you you've uh you caught me off guard. It's, oh, it's you're right. It's Chichen Itza. The Kukuban Pyramid. It is Chichen Itza. Yes, you're right. Oh, uh, um, okay. Kukuban. Yeah, and, and, yes. yeah, and, and the um, uh, uh, side of the uh, staircase uh, gets illuminated on the uh, like summer solstice or something, and it shows a, a snake. And uh, it, um, let's see. Yeah, yeah, you do make uh, observation about the you know. Kundalini and there's kind of uh, snake imagery there, and you know, goes uh, into goddess worship. So we have all these different interpretations of what the snake meant to different cultures and groups, ideologies. Right, so it goes back, I think, even earlier to that. So I, I think I think what's going on here, Mark, and, and I can't swear to this, but I think what's going on is a lot of the ancient cultures had this belief um, that the gods were serpent-like. Now, whether that is because there were ancient aliens who were who were serpent-like aliens who who, who came down and 
and mated with humans and that's where that came from or whether it was something else you know i can't say um you know the sumerians have these 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 origin legends about people that the, the the Anunnaki, meaning those who from heaven came, and they came down and mated. And the, and the book of Genesis 6-1-2 has this whole passage about, um, you know, the, the sons of God came and mated with the human mm-hmm. women. And, you know, are, are yeah, they the really sons of God that came down, or were, were they angels, or were they some kind of aliens coming from, this, from the heavens, you know? And that, um, but what we see is the, a lot of the ancient color, cultures had, and, and um, probably the most... Um, vivid example of that is, is, is an image, I think I sent it to you, Mark, I don't know if you were able to post it, but it's the one uh, at the museum in Iraq of the, uh, the, the mm-hmm. city of Ur, it was found, this um, serpentine, ha- it's half human, and, and the head is like a snake mm-hmm. head, and, and that was where right. they're gods, and so this idea that the ancient gods are half human and half uh, snake, you know, it's sort of... A natural extension of the idea that 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 aliens came down who were serpentine in appearance and mated with humans, and and the resulting the result of that those offspring were 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 the were the sort of the nobility, the royal class, or whatever. So that's just speculation, but we see interesting evidence because uh, around the, the the globe, in six or seven different cultures, I've been able to identify, we have this practice of people's binding the skulls of their infants to mm-hmm. elongate the skulls and make the skulls and the eyes appear more serpentine. So we have it with the Mayans, we have it with, for example, the Queen Nefertiti, we have it in, in even up until around World War II in, in southern France, we have it on the Isle of Malta, we have it in Mesopotamia. It, it's one of these things that it, it's sort of around the world, this common practice of ancient people's even using these these boards to to squish the skulls of their of their their babies again to to elongate them to make the eyes appear more slanty. This also caused physiological changes that allowed the children to have hallucinations and visions and and and, and therefore to be sort of quote unquote more in touch with the gods. But um, I think all this is evidence of this idea that the serpent and the snake were powerful. And, and and worth venerating and worth you know, emulating because of course we always want to emulate our gods. And you do have the snake handling church in Appalachia. Okay, that's uh, yeah. Okay, uh, that. And, that, and that's of course much more modern, and that and that's actually yeah. that's a reflection of the idea that snakes are evil. So now we're back to you know since since the the New Testament, the whole Adam and Eve story, which obviously is the Old Testament, but the whole idea that the devil used the snake to tempt Eve, and again the the snake was a symbol of of forbidden knowledge. You know, God didn't want humans to have knowledge for whatever reason. But now, so now we have in more modern times the idea of a snake being uh, uh, a, a negative thing, an evil thing, and these churches in Appalachia, um, and this goes on still to this day, even though there have been laws passed in most of the southern, most of the Appalachian states prohibiting it. We're talking Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, the Carolinas. People go into these churches and they handle 
poison snakes, usually rattlesnakes. And the idea is that the snake is, is the tool of the devil, but if your faith is strong enough, you can lift this snake. And sometimes people put, like, literally go, you know, chin to chin with these snakes, or they wrap them around their necks. But the idea is if your faith is strong enough, God will protect you from these bites, protect you from the devil. Um, and the reality is people die every year from these snake bites because once you get bitten, then it becomes a situation where everyone surrounds you and prays for you to be healed. So that, then it becomes a test of the faith of the entire congregation. And although if you want, they will take you to a hospital to be cured, there's a lot of peer pressure not to do that, to, to, to instead let the congregation cure you with prayer and song and faith. Um, and the, again, the reality is people die from this every year. But that's more of a modern representation of the snake being the devil and our faith in God should be enough to overcome that. Yeah, and um, it's actually um, it's in at the end of the book of Mark. And you just quote that because you like the name. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I. I guess I was probably named after it. Uh, but uh, it it does say that um, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. There are these signs that will be associated with believers. In my name, they will cast out devils. They will have the gift of tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands and be unharmed should they drink deadly poison. Uh, they right. will lay but, their hands on the sick who will recover. So yeah, that uh, that goes back to uh, whenever the book was Mark was written was like like sixty yeah sixty A D or something. I'm just trying to find it. Yeah, real so fast. so not so you mentioned um, poison. They also take strychnine, and they also talk about uh, talking in tongues. So you see that as well. But um, mm-hmm. strict, some of them some of them uh, you know are are, are injured or even killed from the strychnine as well but that's not quite as visual a thing as watching someone what, what they do is they, they they all start dancing and singing and then they they have a bag of of snakes and of course because of the church they they generally bathe the snakes first because they don't want dirty snakes coming into the church they want clean snakes because it's the house of god but then they, they they dump the snakes out onto the floor and people pick them up one at a time and they they can wrap them around their necks wrap them around their arms hold them up in the air, um, you know, pray with them, dance with them, whatever. Um, and, and they're not defanged or anything. These are, these are poisonous things. And inevitably, people, um, people get bit. So, yes, there is taking of poisons as well, the same kind of test of faith, but that's not quite as dramatic and, you know, doesn't, doesn't get the, the, the National Geographic um, documentary that the, that the snake handling does and people can find these on the internet they're very easy to find if you just google that you'll you'll be able to watch these videos and it's it's really pretty pretty compelling stuff to watch these people actually handle these snakes and um and sometimes get bit okay yeah so you know you return to um an appalachian setting like you did for uh pillars of enoch uh but you know for some of your uh, prep for this book, you went to the Serpent Mound in 
a high right. Uh, tell us so, a little bit about that. Yeah, so field you, you trip. Would, you would, sure, you would you would start this interview off by talking about ancient cultures worshiping the serp, the serpent. You had talked about the descending serpent illumination at, uh, at Chichen Itza, like you said, on the equinox, the, the shadows form the serpent and um, Kukulban and um, Kukulkan, pardon me. And there's a bunch of different examples of, of serpent worship around the world. I was a little bit surprised to see uh, evidence of it in the Ohio River Valley. I know that the, the Native Americans, the Indians in the Southwest, have a tradition of serpent worship, but there's a fascinating um, mound. It's uh, about a quarter mile long, and it's it's a serpent, it's a snake, um, in southern Ohio, about uh, 45 minutes or so south of Columbus, and about 45 minutes west, uh, east of Cincinnati. So southern Ohio. Um, uh, it's called again it's called the serpent mound. Some people think the the, the, the snake, the serpent, ha- is uh, has a, an egg in its mouth, but that's sort of in dispute. Um, and the, this dates back to, um, again, the carbon dating is inconclusive. It's either about 1,000 years ago or about 2,000 years ago. So it's a Dina, Hopewell culture, again, unclear exactly whole, but it's clearly pre-contact. But the idea is that these, um, uh, the, the, the Native Americans in the area, you know, were worshiping the serpent. Um, Unclear exactly why. One of the possibilities, the, the, right next to the the mound, is an impact site from a crater, and it may mm-hmm. be that 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 meteorite, which is much older than the dates I just gave, it goes back you know, millions of years it, probably. It, it, yeah, yeah, it, it was like thirty million years or something. It, it's it right. was long ago. So it may be, and, and this explanation doesn't exactly fit because it's too far back for human memory, but. Some people think that the, the 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 meteorite came out of the the night sky, came out of the constellation Draco, and that the peoples then built the serpent mound to honor the the oh. snake, the Draco constellation, which is where the the, the the meteorite came out of, and and again literally the the impact spot is right on the edge of the serpent mound here. So there's some problems with that theory. Again, that weren't, weren't humans old enough <laughs> around back then to know this, so it doesn't exactly fit. But um, there's also, but, but the, it, it's a little bit weird because there's not a lot of other evidence of serpent worship, snake worship, in that area of, uh, of America. So I'm not quite sure what that's doing there. And so, again, one of the possibilities is, you know, was there some kind of culture that came in from the Mediterranean, from the Middle East, Again, we know there was lots of serpent worship back then there mm-hmm. that maybe came across to the Americas, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, um, you know, pre-Columbus, pre, pre-Viking, pre pre-any of that. Um, were, were, there, were there Mediterranean and Middle Eastern explorers that came across? And so that's one of the possibilities I explore in my book. And that, in turn, I know you don't want to get to this, that ties into the history laid out in the Book of Mormon, about how um, Middle Eastern explorers came over here, you know, about twenty three, twenty four hundred years ago, um, and then that and those timelines sort of jive a little bit. So that's one of the possibilities is that the Serpent Mound in Ohio ties into the history laid out in the Book of Mormon. Okay, so one of the topics you explore in 
your the serpent oracle is that the um Ohio Valley might be the setting for um large portions of the Book of Mormon instead of the um what traditional view that it, that um uh the Book of Mormon was set in the Yucatan uh, area of Mexico. So you know your uh, one of your characters is interested in you know seeing if um yeah, there's some validity to that right. theory. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and I'm not an expert on the Book of Mormon by any stretch, but um, as you said, one of my characters uh, in the story is of the Mormon faith, and she happens to be uh, terminally ill from cancer, and she wants to sort of get answers to the, the things that she's been taught since she was a kid, and so she goes on sort of a, 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 a final quest in her life, and wants to find out some answers to, to this. So the, one of the questions she asks is, in the Book of Mormon, there's this whole thing about a battle between the, the Nephites and the Lamanites. And as you said, Mark, mm-hmm. traditionally that is thought of as taking place in Mesoamerica, in the Yucatan Peninsula area. But there is a group of, of Mormon scholars, and, and Wayne May is probably one of the names that most people associate this with. He uh, mm-hmm. publishes Ancient American Magazine, Wayne believes that, no, that that area called Land Bountiful, where the Nephites and Lamanites um, uh, fought, is actually uh, in the Ohio River Valley, south of the Great Lakes. Um, and he he points to a lot of the, the fortifications um, that mm-hmm. are there in that area, the Serpent Mount, of course, um, something called Fortified Hill, which is in Cincinnati, uh, the Newark Earthworks, the the Great Circle Mound. There's there's a lot of interesting um, fortification like mounds and construction uh, in that area that that do fit the description in the Book of Mormon about the kinds of forts that um, the people back then that built the Nephites built. And and Wayne goes into it pretty deeply. I don't need to go into all the as much detail as he does. But um, it's an interesting argument, and it has not been widely accepted amongst Mormon scholars, but it, it does get some play. And, and I've visited many of these fortification sites, uh, and they're fascinating. They really are. They, 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 they don't sort of fit what you would, you know, if you, if you were to see them in Europe, you'd have no doubt that they were, you know, Roman or something. They, they, they really don't look, quote-unquote, Indian, not to... Not that Indians couldn't have done stuff like this, but just there's just not a lot of evidence that they did. Um, these sites seem to be outliers of some kind, and, and Wayne tries to, you know, try to put the pieces together and say, okay, well, what are they if they're not Indian, if they're not Native American? What else could they be? Uh, and they fit very neatly into the the Book of Mormon history from about that same time period. That time period again, we're talking, you know, a few hundred to a few hundred, few hundred years before Christ to a few hundred years after Christ. That that range in there, maybe. 500 BC to 300 AD in that range uh, is generally what we're talking there. Yeah, you know the uh, Book of Mormon is a frequently overlooked sacred book, but um, 
you know, I, I, I'm not a scholar of it either. I, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, I've read a little bit about it, you know, watched some of uh, Wayne's captivating uh, videos. Um, and, um, you know, I'm reading from, you know, I did a little bit of uh, prep work for uh, tonight's show uh, by reading T.J. O'Brien's Fair Gods and Feather Serpents. And um, T.J. writes, as a background to why he... uh, meaning Jesus, uh, would visit the New World. Mormons quote the Bible passage in John given by Christ to his followers while he was yet in Palestine. Um, And he says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. That's uh, John... Uh, chapter 10, verses 14, uh, uh, the whole passage is uh, 14 to 16. Um, but uh, and it's not abundantly clear. That's a pretty generous reading of that passage, I would yeah. have to say, Mark. Oh, uh, <laughs> to be honest, sorry, sorry to criticize your, your source there, but I, I, I think that's a stretch. But, but yeah, there's uh, other... Uh, parts in, in the Book of Mormon uh, about the use. Uh, if you know, we can look at like some of the uh, uh, Jaredites and uh, oh, is it La- Lamanites? Is that the uh, right? Yeah, yeah, Lamanites and Nephites. Yeah, yeah, and there's, yeah, yeah, and there's the, also different groups of people. It, it, there's you know some evidence that it really does sound like are we using different terms for the Adena and Hopewell people that you know Barbara and I have a bunch of you know scholars you know, of th- those two different cultures on our show and it, you know since so, so they're you know uh, going through you know some of Wayne's videos and you get um <clears throat> Uh, you know the use of pearls, uh, and you know the Hopewell used um, them in, in uh, you know, place them in burials uh, with um, you know, some of the um, you know pro- uh, prominent people of the village. Um, well, and also don't forget like things like the. The Hanukkah fort in, um, in Ohio, yeah. you know, there's a fortification that's shaped like a Hanukkah menorah. So, like, who, you know, mm-hmm. and a and time frame, not to mention the uh, the Decalogue stone. And th- there's yep. a bunch of different artifacts and sites in the Ohio River Valley that, that go back to the Middle East. There's Hebrew writing, there's Hebrew artifacts, and they go back to right around that same time period, you know, 2,000 or 2,500 years ago, right around the same time. 
as the Book of Mormon events are taking place. And remember, the Book of Mormon talks about how the whole thing starts when a group of um, uh, uh, a family of, of, of people from Israel come eventually to America. So that and I forget the guy's name. Um, I should know. Um, that I don't want to apologize, but that was about starts out about 600 BC, and they make their way to America, and really the stories of of these families. Um, but but what Wayne, what Wayne is doing, and I think it, it I think it's good research. He's looking at these these anomalous sites, you know, the, the Hebrew carvings, the, the fortifications, all the different things in the Ohio River Valley, and saying, you know, this doesn't make sense with what we know about. Native American history, so maybe maybe there's an outside influence here. And I think if you look at, and you started to make this point earlier, Mark, if you look at the Book of Mormon as a potential historical reference, you know, not that we, I'm not saying that everything in there is accurate because there's a lot of things that are, are religious in nature that I don't necessarily agree with, but, but just the basic story about people coming over here during that time period and, and having wars and, and building fortifications, whatever, just that part of it. You know, maybe there's some truth to that, even if you don't believe in the entire religion. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I think that, that that's so where I where I come how I come at it is um, there are things I don't understand about the, the anomalous sites and anomalous artifacts in that High River Valley area that don't make sense to me. And there's a story told in the Book of Mormon that helps explain those things. And so maybe. We can put the two of those together, marry those two things together, and help us understand things a little better. So that, that's how I look at this. Um, you know, not to say that it's definitive, but I think we need to look at the possibility. And Wayne has done a nice job sort of opening our eyes to those possibilities. Oh, yeah, I think so. Uh, to, and he talks about in the book of Ether, um, it, uh, the people were working in copper uh, and uh, other metal metals and ores. Um, you know, the Hopewell did that. Um, it, it, the use of head plates, maybe some of the uh, huge bodies of water. Since, since we're talking about Ohio, you know, a huge body of water uh, could be just the nearby Great Lakes. <clears throat> So I mean the geography—it's not really super specific, but if you put all these um, traits in a general geographic descriptions on top of you know the Midwest, Ohio, it, it's like. Yeah, you know, this is actually uh, kind of makes sense that um, you know, the, the sacred book could be set in uh, the Ohio River Valley instead of uh, Mexico. And, uh, it is it, it is a very uh, thought provoking theory. Well, and, and, and I don't want to get um, – I don't want to lose the, the, the thread we started on, which was the Surfeit Mound itself in southern Ohio, which mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's – unfortunately, there's some political thing going on here, but it was on a preliminary list to become a World Heritage Site, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's a fascinating site, and I 
you know, my wife and I did the drive out from Boston um, just this past April, and it was well worth the trip. It was a 14-hour drive, but again, it was really a, just an amazing um, sight to see, and I would encourage all the all your listeners to, to get out there to Southern Ohio and check it out. Um, but the thing about it is, is it just doesn't fit anything else that's going on in that area. In fact, it was only recently that the Native American tribes in the area even sort of laid claim to it or or, or embraced it as their own. Again, for a long time, you know, even they didn't really understand what it was or 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 or, or um, uh, recognize it as being part of their her- heritage. And, you know, the Native Americans are very very zealous in, in protecting their heritage as they should be, but not in right. this particular case. And I think it may be because. They didn't really have a memory of it and didn't have a history of it because it doesn't fit. It's like there's something else going on there. And so um, when I see something like that, it makes me go, huh. You know, if the Native Americans, for whatever reason, you know, 100 years ago didn't recognize it as part of their culture, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe there's something else going on with that. We have a site like that and very near and dear to your heart. I know the American Stonehead site in Salem, New Hampshire. I know you've had Dennis Stone on many times. And people say, oh, it's a Native American site. And yet I go up there four or five times a year for, for equinoxes, for solstices, for whatever, and there's almost never any Native American presence there. And I've talked to Native American tribal leaders in the area, and they say, hey, that's a, that's a neat site, but we didn't do that. Like, we have no memory of that. That's not part of our heritage. We have, mm-hmm. you know, that's not one of our sites. Not to say we couldn't yeah, yeah. have done that. We just didn't. And so if they say they didn't do it, like, who am I to say they did? And that, that's the problem with some of these. We try to pigeonhole these things. Well, it, you know, it wasn't the colonists, because we know that scientifically. It's older than that. It must be the Native Americans. Well, no, they say we didn't do it. So, so now we're left with the third choice, which is, again, some kind of European or Mediterranean or African or Asian or some kind of other group of seafarers who came across the oceans, and we didn't know about it. We don't know about it today. Therefore, it couldn't have happened. And I'm like, well, hold on one second. If it's not colonial and it's not Native American, it must be one of these other groups. And just because we don't know about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Let's go look at it and, and try to figure out what did happen. So that's the same analysis we're making in America's Stonehenge, and that applies also to the Serpent Mound site in Ohio. It's not. It's too old to be colonial. It's obviously not colonial. The colonists would do stuff like that. The Native Americans didn't really embrace that site for a long time, so there's a question about whether it's theirs. So what's the third possibility? Is there another possibility? You mentioned Wayne, uh, Wayne May's research. Maybe it's the Book of Mormon story. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's related to the copper culture where I think the ancient mm-hmm. Phoenicians may have come across to the Great Lakes to trade for and mine copper. And maybe they did something like that. Because, again, the Phoenicians were from the part of the world that was serpent worshipping. So maybe that's related to them. Maybe not, but maybe. So, again, these are the areas of inquiry I think we need to be a little more zealous and open-minded about making. Okay, and you just mentioned the uh, Decalogue Stone and the uh, Hanukkah Fort. Uh, So how – that that asks us to think about, so how – did native people know Jewish uh, traditions? Right. So the Decalogue stone is about the size of a channel remote, channel clicker. 
and it has a picture of Moses carved on it. We know it's Moses because it has his name above him and written in Hebrew. And it has the Ten Commandments around the rim of it. And and it was found in a, in a burial mound not too far from the Newark earthworks, Newark, Ohio. Um, and what we know about, which is, which is really helpful, because it was it was found on a wooden platform, resting on a wooden platform, and the platform itself was carbon dated to about 100 A.D. So this fits in really nicely, again, with the Book of Mormon stuff, because that's right around the time frame uh, of, this, of, of, those, of those stories. But it also fits in with, you know, perhaps I wrote a book called Romerica, where I postulate that there might have been um, Roman-era uh, explorers, probably related to the ancient Phoenicians, who came to America right around that same time period um, and made their way to the Ohio River Valley. Uh, and again, they, they would have had knowledge of Hebrew, which is where the Hebrew writing comes in. Um, but, you know, clearly the Native Americans at 100, 100 A.D. were not speaking Hebrew and carving Hebrew. That just doesn't make any sense. Um, and then nearby there was something we you just mentioned, the Ohio Hanukkah Fort. Again, it's an earthwork, so earth mounds, earth embankments uh, built up. Um, but it, it's in the shape of... It's basically a combination of a menorah, which is a, a, a nine-stemmed candelabra, which is used to celebrate the Hanukkah uh, festival in Judaism, and also a oil lamp, which also is part of the Hanukkah festival because the story goes the Hanukkah miracle is that the, there was only enough oil in the temple to light the, the lamp for one day and burn for, for eight days, which is why the Hanukkah candle is eight days plus one. Anyway, there's a, the, the, the fort is shaped like a, a lamp and a menorah together. It's just a very unique design and, again, not something that the Native Americans would have any reason to do. And, of course, we know it's too old to be colonial. So who could have done this? Um, clearly there is some kind of Old Testament Jewish influence there. had to be somebody who had knowledge of Old Testament stories and spoke Hebrew in order to have done these things. Um, who was it? We don't know. What are the possibilities? Okay, let's get into it. What are the possibilities? Um, and it's that second question. What are the possibilities that so many or so few mainstream historians and archaeologists are willing to ask those questions? Instead, they say things like, well, it must be a fake. Well, it must be, you know, a hoax. Well, it must not really be. That must not really be an oil lamp and a menorah. It must be something else. When if you take a look at it, you know, even a six-year-old kid will say, "Oh, that's a menorah. That's an oil lamp." I mean, it's not that hard to see, and yet we can't seem to get mainstream historians and academic types to even ask any of these questions. Um, and that's a little bit frustrating, but. Anyway, so I apologize for that little, little diatribe, that little tangent. But the artifacts right. are there, and they tell a story, and I think it's our job to try to figure out what that story is. Okay, and um, I, I, um, I don't know if there's you – know, uh, um, one of the themes in your serpent oracle is you know, you know the theme of the the two uh hills the the uh, butler uh county hill, hill fort with the, um 
the maze-like entrance. Um, that, that's in uh, Squire and Davis's book. And the Hill Kumara that was the um, final battle um, in the Book of Mormon. Right, so, that's one of the one of the big pieces of evidence Wayne may one of the big arguments Wayne may make, and I think it's very compelling, is that is that the final battle, which m- most scholars believe happened in the Yucatan, was supposedly near the Hill Kumora, which we know is in upstate New York. And Wayne's point mm-hmm. is, well. How can he can't be both? He can't be close to Hill Cumora and be in the Yucatan, and that's why he says, "Well, maybe it wasn't in the Yucatan. Maybe it was in the Ohio River Valley, which is not all that far from upstate New York." So, so there we go. So that you know, that's another part of his argument is just look at the look at the common sense geography, and you know, the, the Yucatan location seems odd, being thousands of miles from Hukumara. Yeah, you know, and, and that's where uh, the Hill Kumara is where uh, Joseph Smith found the, um, right. found the copper tablets. So, exactly. you know, there are some artifacts um, associated with that. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it really is um, a lot of interesting aspects of America's prehistory that you delve into that you know a lot of you know mainstream uh people probably aren't going going to acknowledge that but it, it, there's something that need yeah the eyes needed to be dotted uh yeah it's just it, it's there's some information out there that is just leaves us feeling like this gap is really bothering me that you know we just can't uh fill it you, mark you said the eyes need to be dotted i would say the eyes need to be opened i would say that we oh, need okay. people to open their eyes to this and and I, I come at this. I, you, you know this, but maybe some of your listeners don't. I'm a lawyer by trade, so I, you know, I've been practicing law for 35 years. My, so my training is in evidence. So I was taught early on as a law student. Hey, look, if there's evidence in a case, if there's a table full of evidence, you can't just pick and choose which evidence you want to use. Because if there's evidence that is against you, you can be damn sure the other side is going to bring it up in front of the jury. So you, you better have a an explanation for it. You can't just stick your head in the sand and say, oh, we're going to ignore this, those fingerprints. We're going to ignore, you know, whatever it is. You, you, you need to have an explanation for every piece of evidence in the case, and it has to be consistent with your theory of the case. And so here we are, and we have artifacts, the, the serpent mound, the fortifications, the decalogues, so whatever it is, we have things that are there, and we have science behind them to tell us how old they are, who built them, whatever. And yet we have versions of history that ignore these pieces of evidence and don't take them into account. And to me, that just doesn't work. That's, you know, that, that's, that's being intellectually um, dishonest, that you, you can't tell a story that leaves some of, the, some of the pieces of evidence out. That's not a complete story. So 
that's why I go back to said we have to open our eyes to this stuff. There has to be an explanation for it. You're just not allowed to, to leave that stuff out uh, and just say, oh, you know, put my Sergeant Schultz, right, on the Ogan's hero. I know nothing. That, that doesn't work. That works in a, in a sitcom. It doesn't work in history. Okay, so um, the su- subtitle of uh, the Serpent Oracle is Templars, Mormons, and the Lilith Legacy. H- how does <laughs> Lilith fit into the Serpent Oracle? Yeah, so so Lilith's a great character, by a great a great person in history. Um, the it's, it's sort of in many ways she embodies that whole idea behind are snakes good or evil. So Lilith, for those listeners who may not know, um, Adam had a wife before Eve, Lilith. People don't realize that. So Lilith was the first wife of Adam. And um, unfortunately for Adam, Lilith was also the first feminist. So she did things like wanting to be equal to Adam. Uh, sexually, she wanted to be on top. Adam didn't like that. He wanted somebody who was very submissive who was not assertive, and he complained to God, and he said, this little, too much, I, I don't want this, I want, you know, it's not what I want. So God said, okay, we're going to get rid of Lilith, we're going to send her down to, made her a demon, sent her back down to, to the underworld, and, he, and God created Eve. So that was Adam's second wife. And so Lilith, uh, since then, has sort of been associated with um, wanton women, women who are sexually active, um, usually pictures of her, she's portrayed with the snake, again, because she's associated with the underworld, with the devil. So oftentimes she's naked with a snake covering her private parts. Um, in in Judaism, uh, there are legends of how Lilith will come during the night and cause men to have ejaculations, wet dreams. And so women would, uh, would, 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 uh, make these these bowls, these pottery bowls, and and carve into them an incantation, uh, telling Lilith to stay away, and then bury these bowls under the doorstep of their home to keep Lilith away from their husbands at night, okay, and also away from their babies because Lilith was known to steal babies. But this whole association of Lilith as being demonic and stealing babies and stealing husbands, and association with the snake, uh, all this goes back to. Um, the whole idea in Christianity that Eve was the preferred wife. She was submissive. She, what she did do wrong was she, she dared to, to seek the forbidden knowledge. We don't want women seeking knowledge. We want women to be sort of, you know, you, you, you can turn to your husband if you want knowledge. You don't want you seeking it on your own. This whole idea, this whole tension between submissive women and and the, and the feminists of today, which is represented by Lilith. And so a lot of the, um, the, the modern-day feminist movements have used Lilith and the snake, by association, as symbols of their movements. So Lilith is a fascinating character. The, the old TV sitcom with um, uh, Cheers with Dr. Fraser Crane and his wife, who, of course, was a, a strong feminist. Her name was Lilith, you know, and she was, it was very aptly named, but... Um, I'm not sure if many people understood or know that Eve was Adam's second wife, not his first. Yeah, and, and or, earlier, yeah, you mentioned um, the elongated 
skulls gave you know, people hallucinations and uh, some people can um, have thought that uh, John of Patmos was having hallucinations in uh, the cave um, that produced the dictation of uh, the book of Revelation. Um, so, it, you, you know, so you, you get into it, like the Lilith legacy, legacy from, uh, from um, uh, Jewish uh, folklore and some of these other uh, say, uh, ideas of like spirituality um right you know and i meant i forgot I, I, to mention one thing about lilith and let me just jump in quickly but the, sure. the whole idea of, of lilith haunting the you know haunting the 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 families and and stealing the babies and and causing ejaculations in the husbands and stuff um there was a um an incantation a hebrew incantation lilu abi abi meaning lilith be gone lilu abi abi lullaby that's where the word lullaby comes from. <laughs> Lilu Abi Abi, Lilith be gone, uh, recited by Jewish mothers over an infant's cradle. And uh, that's sort of a cool little piece of trivia. That, that, that's where yeah. the word lullaby comes from. That. Cool. So, yeah. The, 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 the Morticia Adams in, in Adams Family, the old Adams Family show, Morticia yep. Adams, and she's dressed in black and she's very voluptuous. And we never really see her feet, but they're sort of serpent like feet. Snake-like feet, you know. They, they we don't know. She sort mm -hmm. of, um, she's a she's a Lilith-like character as well. Okay, so, uh, yeah, yeah, we uh, don't don't need to uh, uh, reenact Gomez's response if she speaks French <laughs> on the show. <laughs> I but, had, I, I was at a town meeting once. This is a total segue and. And uh, and there was a guy who just was making a complete idiot of himself, and and, uh, and one of us said, uh, you know, Uncle Fester uh, put a light bulb in his head and make it, in his mouth and make it light up, and that doesn't make him a scientist any more than it makes you a scientist because you can say blah 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 blah. And it was a, it was a great Uncle Fester put down just because he can put a light bulb in his mouth doesn't make him a scientist, and uh, <laughs> good, I like good, it. Good Adam family talk. That's always a good thing for a talk show. <laughs> yeah, and, and and there's actually a um lurch uh festival. You gotta come come down for that and uh work that into another like Appalachian section of your book. I think it's in Philippi, West Virginia. Was wasn't he in the movie um Oh, he was a judge in that in that movie, um My Cousin Vinny, right? No, that that was uh, Herman Munster. Oh, was that Herman Munster? Okay, I, yeah. I, 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 I stand corrected. Munster is not the not the Adams family. You're right. Um, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's um, yeah, yeah. The, there, there is a Lurch Festival. I, um, I think it was early uh, in the spring. Um, it, it's uh, um, I don't know. Mental. I just really irritated myself. Now I'm going to have to look it up uh, while we're going to something else. But, but um, 
Um, so let me yeah, say there's... one more point because we, we got off the topic, and I wanted to make this point that the idea of this conflict between the snake being good and evil, um, you know, in modern times we think of it as being pretty evil, and yet the rod of Asclepius, the symbol of of, of the American Medical Association. Um, yeah. You know, e- even today there are still vestiges of people understanding that the snake represents wisdom, and and so in ancient times that was very well accepted. Today, not so much, but the medical association still has that. And I also found interesting, uh, and again in, in in Freemasonry, the symbolism is always a couple layers down deep, but found some interesting symbolism in. Freemasonry, for example, there's a there's a there's a uh, one of their um, uh, rituals has to do with the uh, the brazen serpent, which is a, a story in the Old Testament of how um, the Israelites were misbehaving, and so uh, they many of them were were bitten by snakes. But God said, if if you if you are bitten by the snake, if you look upon the serpent that I put on the pole. You won't die, and so the serpent was a symbol of God, of God's power and God's God's um, mercy. So again, it wasn't negative; it was positive. Um, and there's a, a brazen serpent um, ritual in Freemasonry, and also, and this was really cool, and I use this in, in, in the story itself. There's a rogue group of Freemasons, a group of Freemasons who want to go back to the the older, stricter kind of Freemasonry. Started this group started in the Philippines and then spread to the West Coast, and they're called the Grand and Glorious Order of the Knights of the Creeping Serpent, the Creeping Serpent. So, so they adopted the old, you know, the old names of some of these, the Knights of the Creeping Serpent. I thought that was really interesting too that they, uh, mm-hmm. they they went back to the the snake as their symbol. Yeah, the, uh, you know, more of a traditional. Yeah, yeah, yeah you do have uh, or, um, fundamentalist might be a you know, a better term I could have used, um, but yeah, you do have you know, branches that you know, want to re- return to the basics. Yeah, so, you know, that's uh, characteristic for. Uh, Spiritually aware groups, right? You, you have you have that. Every group has that. Some every group there's going to be tension between modernizing. Do we want to let women in? Do we want to let minorities in? Do we want to open up? Uh, you know, to 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 the more more transparent to the public, or do we want to go back to the old ways of just you know limited um, membership, closed doors, um, strict rules hazing, you know, whatever. So every group goes through that. And, and this particular group, they wanted to be more uh, conservative. They had hazing. They had stricter rituals. Um, but again, as I said before, in Freemasonry, things are always a couple levels below the surface. Uh, in my mind, the fact that they chose to call themselves the, the Knights of the Creeping Serpent, the snake, uh, I thought was meaningful. Okay, and I did find uh, the website for Lurch Fest. <laughs> uh, okay, it, it 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 was held on August sixth. Um, on Museum Street in Philippi, West Virginia, all celebrating Philippi's native son Ted Cass- Cassidy. 
best known for his role as Lurch in the 1960s TV show The Addams Family. So there, well, there we uh, go. You, you can Google it. Uh, still, you know, you know, number of different websites pop up, but uh, yeah, that's all. I guess it would uh, um, be you know, like about the first weekend of August. So you know, I mean, get some people there. Uh, get get there for next year, <laughs> but but. Um, I you know I I enjoyed um, the Serpent Oracle. Um, I don't I don't want to give away you know the whole whole book, but um, you know yeah you know, there are you know you do have some uh, Templar information in there. Um, Right, so the temple. I always like I mentioned that the, the Freemasons um, that you know everything is sort of below the surface, and that you know they they're a good sort of litmus test for what ancient what 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 some of the secret beliefs are. The Templars also, you know, because they're a secret society as well. Um, this whole idea that the ancient peoples believed in the union of some kind of alien serpent space traveling group mating with the humans. You know, I talked about the figurine uh, that was at the museum mm-hmm. in Iraq, which is the, the snake face mm-hmm. and the human body. There's another representation of that, that the Templars, and you know, people, your listeners probably know the Templars, were basically a secret organization, uh, warrior monks for about 200 years from the early 1100s to the early 1300s. They were basically the army of the church, but they were not only warriors, they were religious, so an com- interesting combination. And many people believe that the Freemasons, after the Templars were outlawed in 1307, that they went underground and reconstituted themselves as the Freemasons, and that, that group carries forward the, the traditions and secrets of Templarism. But um, the Templars... As a secret group, we don't know a lot about them. Um, and then within the Templars, they had uh, secret seals that they used for their communications. One of their, and some of those seals have survived. One of the secret seals is something called uh, the symbol of Abraxas, A-B-R-A-X-A-S, which is a Greek word, and each of those letters is the first letter of one of the planets um, in the solar system. Um, the point is that it's it's a the 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 Gnostic group uh, in in France. These are an offshoot of Christianity. The Gnostics worshipped Abraxas as a pagan god that they believe was superior even to Yahweh, even to God. They believe Abraxas created Yahweh, and of course Yahweh is the father of Jesus and uh, and our and the God that we pray to in Judeo Christianity. Um, but they believe there was a higher being called Abraxas. But they believed Abraxas was half, and this is finally my point, was half human and half snake. So they had snake legs and a human body. Mm-hmm. And also, by the way, a rooster head. Put, they'll put that aside for a second. But again, we're back to uh, Morticia Adams in the Adams family or, or, or a mermaid, perhaps. But the idea that, um, that, that the gods were half human and half serpent. So that's a pagan belief, and eventually the, the Gnostics and, uh, were, were wiped out by the, by the 
Catholic Church in something called the Albigensian Crusade in the early 1200s uh, for being the wrong kind of Christians, for worshipping the Zabraxas pagan deity, the wrong god. Um, but the Templars uh, secretly use Abraxas on, on one of their seals. And so to me, when I see something like that, like, why would the Templars glorify and venerate something like that unless they also believed it? They believed this whole idea that the ancient gods were not just human, but they were half snake, half serpent. That, that's the symbolism of the Abraxas the Templars, again, being, even though they were the, the church of, uh, the army of the church, they were good Christians. That's what they were. Uh, but they still use this secret seal. So to me, that speaks volumes. And there has to be a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I maybe take a sample from your book, uh, or America, where, you know, I think there are a bunch of, uh, coins, uh, that were found in the Ohio River Valley, what, what between 200 and 300 AD? Um, well, yeah, mostly in that range, right around 200 AD, yeah. Okay, it, it, uh, okay, and, and also found, yeah. by the way, on, on, along the Atlantic coast in New England, same dates, by the way. Okay, it's, so, there you have, Isolated um, lo- uh, discoveries of coins uh, you know, around the same time period, uh, and you, know, you do have um, other examples in your books. Right? It's like uh, what's the, uh, so around 600 BC is when Lehi left Jerusalem to come to uh, the uh, America, uh, North America. Um, Thank you. The, the, the so, first, yes, the Book of Mormon, Lehi is his name. Thank you for getting that. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so, so, you know, when you are uh, you know, outlining your book, or you know whatever uh, book you're working on, you, you know when you start seeing uh, something happened here, and you know let's you know, just say Jerusalem at, at this time, and ten, ten years later, uh, all of a sudden we find uh, Hebrew. Writing for the very first time in this other location, you know, it's so long ago. Don't really have exact um, uh, documents, you know, surviving documentation that um, in the Hebrew people left here and went here, but. You know, there's like, okay, this kind of makes sense. You get, give them a little bit of time to, uh, you know, get re, you know, reestablished elsewhere. You know, a little migration pattern uh, going on. Uh, nothing in, in, in the Hebrew uh, written language uh, predates this one artifact. So when you're outlining a, 
a book and you come across examples like that, you know, it's, you know there's uh, a consistency in time periods. Um, how does how do you approach that? Uh, um, you know, to make a point, uh, you know, propel your story uh, forward. So it's interesting you brought that up in the context of the book Romerica because Romerica is a book. It's about um, Roman era artifacts, right around the year 200 mm-hmm. AD, all across America. And it's a book I resisted writing for a long time because I, you know, when I do my research, I come across. You, you called them earlier out of place artifacts, and I and I make I have a file and I and I add to my file, and and after a while the file that was dating to around 200 A.D. was getting thicker and thicker and thicker, to the point where there were artifacts like all over the Ohio River Valley and New England, and they all clustered right around that same date, and it seemed like every time there was an, an artifact that we somebody came across, they would do carbon dating or they would do some kind of luminescence testing or whatever the scientific test was. A, a, a coin itself has a date on it. That's easy. All the dates were coming back right around that time period. And finally, I'm like, you know what? There's, there's just too much of this to ignore. There, this goes back to what I said earlier. You can't just ignore the evidence. The, the evidence has to, has to drive the story. You can't, you can't start with the story and then look for evidence. You have to start with the evidence and then look for the story behind it. So there has to be some kind of story behind all these different artifacts. Um, and so I, I resisted for a long time this, the Romerica book. And in the end, when I finally did sit down and write it, and I think I told you this before, Mark, it was the quickest book I ever wrote. It took me a, literally 101 days from start to finish to write that book, which normally takes me twice that time, at least twice as long. But that book had been building up in me for so long because of all the artifacts I kept finding and wondering about them. And when I finally sat down, it went whoosh, just sort of came out of me. Um, but, you know, it's not always that easy. But there were so many, not just artifacts dating back to that time period, but then historical events. So, for example, the, the Bar Kafka uprising in Jerusalem is 132 A.D. Don't quote me exactly. It's right around that time period. Okay. But, that was the same, right around the same time. So, so if all these Hebrew-related artifacts are here during that time period, why? Well, you have a huge migration. It's called the diaspora out of Jerusalem. Once the Romans put put down the uprising, they basically the Jews were, were either enslaved or exiled or killed, and so the Jews left. And you know, where did they go? They went all over the world. Well, maybe some of them found their way across the Atlantic, and that's why we have, that That would be the, the, the historical event that would explain how all these artifacts dated around that same time period ended up in America. And so, you know, you start putting the pieces together, and you're like, you know, I'm, I may not have the story exactly right, but there is a story there, and, you know, I, I think my, my, my version of it's plausible, at least. I, I might have some of it wrong, but, you know, this goes back to what I said earlier. We can't just ignore all these sites and artifacts. They're, 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 there's history behind those, and we can't just say, "Oh, they, you know, they're they're fakes, they're they're hoaxes, they're, you know, it's just a coincidence." And, you know, that that's that's uh, that's lazy, and it's also, uh, I think, intellectually disingenuous. Okay, it, it, yeah, it, it's just, uh, I, you know, with so many people uh, 
writing now and a lot of people might be wrapping up um, books that they wrote during two years of all, all the pandemic craziness. Um, you know, I'm just trying to give uh, you know people ideas on how other uh, professional writers go about crafting their stories. You know, uh, to the point where yeah, I think you're. All your books are interest. Uh, you, you know, they really pull you into the story and have these interesting artifacts that are real. But yeah, you know, then you overlay the story with uh, Cam getting. Uh, you, know, you usually have someone you know being blackmailed. You know, you're really good at crafting how so, someone gets blackmailed. Yeah, that's my that's my my old lawyer background with the you know sort of the, the the legal ramifications of some of the stuff or like you said blackmail or you know economic you know, some kind of uh, real estate twist sometimes but but mm-hmm. I, what you said at the beginning of that question I think is very important which is the artifacts to me the the most compelling thing about the stories that I write um, are the artifacts and and I'm one of the few fiction writers that I know that includes pictures of the artifacts in the story, because I want to make it clear to the readers that these are real artifacts. The, the Serpent Mound in Ohio is a real mound. Um, I've the, been there, yeah. Yeah, the tower the, in Rhode the, Island, that, the Newport Tower is a real tower. All, so if I write about an artifact, it's real, and the things I say about it historically are, are accurate. Now, the story that I tell behind the characters, you mentioned Cameron and the other characters, obviously that's fiction. But I think the thing that makes my books, I think the reason they've been successful, is people are fascinated by the, the fact that they're real artifacts and real sites, and there is a real history behind the fiction. So it's, some people call it faction. It's factually based fiction. But I, um, again, I, I, you know, for anybody who's out there looking to do something like this, if you can find real artifacts as opposed to making them up, that's better because you, now you're half your story is told because people are naturally curious about, hey, you know, wait, there's, there's, a, there's a fort shaped like a menorah in Ohio. Well, what the heck is that doing there? Right away people are interested in that as opposed to creating something out of the blue that people are like, oh, that's sort of a cool plot, but, you know, I know it's not real. Yeah, or, uh, you know, the Decalogue Stone is on display and go there and make up your own mind. Right. Yeah, we stopped throwing away. We stopped throwing away down to mm-hmm. the uh, Serpent Mound in Ohio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've been to the uh, Johnson Humbrick. Uh, Good for you. Yeah, Johnson just, something with an H. <laughs> Humbrick yeah, Humbrick uh, House. Yeah, I know. A nice yeah. museum. Very nice. Yeah, and they have lots of other uh, really nice displays of um, Central yeah. American. And uh, a lot of the like culture stuff there too, yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, I think uh, they had some Kachina dolls. So it, it it was really a uh, well done display. But um, with your Sheba's uh, revenge, um, Humrick House, Johnson Humrick House Museum, and. Shockton, Ohio. There we go. Mm-hmm. I want to 
give out a shout-out. They were a nice little museum. Johnson Humrick House Museum, Coshocton, Ohio. You can see the not only the um, uh, a decalogue stone, Decalogues. but also other Adena, Hopewell culture um, items and, and other things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you have a sample of uh, uh, ruins of the canals, uh, like uh, oh, uh, what's the name of the, the the canal that went through the area? You know, I think you uh, that's part of the uh, park. It's real. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, but, but in your, your uh, Sheba's Revenge, let's get a little background on. We're gonna switch. All right, we're gonna switch. So I want to make yeah, one more who, comment about um, the, the, the the serpent stuff we've talked. I, I mentioned the uh, America Stonehenge site in mm-hmm. New Hampshire, again, near and dear to your site, your, to your heart, Mark. Yep. There's also you know, some snake walls there that, that Dennis yep. has discovered. Recently they did some, some um, LIDAR um, imaging, which basically allows you to see uh, the landscape without the trees. So you just see the stones, and you can see these amazing snake stone walls that sort of begin and end for no reason whatsoever, um, which makes him think, and I happen to agree, that there probably was serpent worship going on there as well. Um, so not just the serpent mound in Ohio, but some fascinating serpent walls in southern New Hampshire as well. Yeah. So it, I'm looking forward to see how the research on those develop and you know is there some kind of connection between Dennis's serpent uh serpentine walls and the serpent mound and other places in Alabama so it's interesting yep. to contemplate um but um it, it, with, with uh uh Sheba's revenge um Oh, and you know, the the uh, listeners can also go to uh, Barbara's homepage and look at uh, Secrets of the St- her movie Secrets of the Stones, and you know, there's some uh, it's great. It's a great documentary. Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, the serpentine walls there that uh, she and Patrick filmed. But um, yeah, okay. To, to refresh our uh, listeners' uh, m- memories on who is uh, Sheba. Let's get a little background on that story. Right. So, so Sheba's Revenge um, is the latest. It's the fourteenth in, in my series of uh, Templars in America books. Um, it's called Sheba's Revenge: Oak Island and the Templar Treasure. But Sheba uh, was the I would say mythical, but not mythical. I think most most historians recognize her as being a historical, uh, a real historical figure. So the story behind um, Sheba is that um, you know she was described as bold, brilliant, and beautiful, uh, a queen of um, Ethiopia uh, or that area. It may have been some neighboring areas, but in that general area, uh, northern eastern coast of Africa. Uh, so at one point, during this is the, during the time of King Solomon, so uh, in the 9th century B.C., so she traveled north to visit the famous uh, 
King Solomon. Uh, and apparently at the time she did, she was a virgin. Apparently that was part of um, the tradition of her uh, for a country was that the queen remained a virgin. Now, I don't know how she ended up having heirs, if that was the case, but for whatever reason, she was still a virgin. And he had sort of a crush on her, but she made him promise not to try to seduce her. But uh, he tricked her. Basically what happened was he threw a big... Uh, banquet for her on her last night, and um, and filled the, the food was filled with spices and salt, and he had made her promise not to steal anything from her when he was when she was visiting in exchange for his promise not to try to seduce her. So she woke up in the middle of the night, uh, very thirsty from the spicy salty food, and grabbed a jug of water, which in the dark she did not see was labeled property of King Solomon, and she drank the water. And he was waiting in, in the fat shadows and said, Aha, you stole my water, therefore I, I, I'm, uh, not, I'm no longer bound by my promise not to try to seduce you. And so he seduced her, and she became pregnant. Maybe he raped her, I don't know, but she became pregnant. Twenty years later, the son of that union named Melanick uh, returned to Jerusalem to meet his father. Um, and Solomon, to his credit, welcomed him and actually asked him to stay um, and rule by his side. Men declined because he said, I need to go back to Ethiopia and rule there. And so Solomon offered uh, his top advi- the sons of his top advisors to accompany Melanich. So basically the cabinet, the sons of the cabinet figures, he offered to Menelik sort of as the junior, you know, that the, they could grow, uh, grow old and, and wise with Melanich, and uh, to go back to Ethiopia to help him rule. Um, the sons uh, were not happy about that. They didn't want to be sent away from Jerusalem. They, they were happy. They didn't want to go to the backwaters of Ethiopia. And so they decided to conspire to steal the Ark of the Covenant as they were departing. And so off they went, and Melanelik did not know about that, but they took the Ark of the Covenant. And at some point, Solomon learned of the theft, and he gave chase. And there's a fascinating book called the Kibra Nagas, which is basically the history of Ethiopia. And the Kibra Nagas tells the, describes this escape in, in great detail. Uh, and, and the point basically is that, that Solomon does, does not catch them, that they end up back in Ethiopia. And I think and to this day many scholars believe that uh, the Ark of the Covenant is in Ethiopia, uh, at a place called Aksum, um, and that the, the Jews of Ethiopia... Um, many of which were airlifted, many of whom were airlifted out of Ethiopia in the 1970s, um, the Falasha Jews, uh, are the descendants of those advisors who who came to Ethiopia almost 3,000 years ago. But that's the story of, of sort of the Queen of Sheba. And um, that was the kickoff for for the story um, but it really wasn't. Really, the kickoff was this whole idea, and I don't know if you want me to get into it now, Mark, the idea of, of the real location of Jerusalem. Should I get into that now, or do you want to talk more yeah, about it? Yeah, 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 that's, uh, uh, that's fine. I, you know, just, I had it on my question, you know, eventually get to it at some, yeah. some point. Why not now? Yeah, so so this is – I mentioned earlier that I, had, I I waited a while to write the Romerica book. I waited a really long time to write this book because – I'd come across this research a long time ago. It, 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 it's sort of well circulated in, in the Arab world, but it hasn't really gotten its way out because it's been poo-pooed as being uh, bad research. But I, I think there's some validity to it. But a lot of 
Arab sources argue that the, the original Jerusalem, when I say that I'm talking about the, the home of King Solomon's temple, that it was not located in Jerusalem as we know it today, but instead it was located in Western Arabia. Okay? And that, so when, when, when the, when the um, original temple was destroyed in the 9th century, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, when, I'm sorry. Let me back up for a second. When, when the when the when the original temple was was built in the ninth century by King Solomon, um, that it was not built in Jerusalem, but it was built in Western Arabia, and that only after um, it was destroyed during the Babylonian exile around 600 BC, and the Israelites were enslaved in Babylon, which was Iraq really, um, and then. They were eventually freed a couple generations later. Only then did the Israelites settle in modern-day Jerusalem. Uh, but that the original settlement of the Jews was in Arabia. So, obviously, that, that, if that's true, if that argument is, is true, it creates a huge uh, geopolitical question today because, of course, the whole claim that the Jewish people have to the Holy Land is that God promised the Jews that land. And, 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 of course, many of the fundamentalist Christians worldwide, and particularly in America, who support Israel and support Israel's right to Jerusalem base that support on that same argument, that God promised Jerusalem, the Holy Land, to the Jewish people. But if the Holy Land is in Western Arabia and not in Jerusalem, that's a problem, a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And so there's really two main arguments that the supporters of this theory point to. One is that there's, you know, if you read, if you read about what King Solomon built, the temple itself was, was massive and was you know, covered with gold and jewels, and it was a, really a, a fabulously ornate building. And, and Solomon, by the way, was, I think, based on the sources, the richest person the world has ever known. Uh, if you take the ten richest people today and you aggregate their wealth, they still wouldn't be as rich as Solomon was back then. Um, so he built some amazing things, palaces and judiciary buildings and, of course, his temple, um, uh, a palace for his wife, uh, incredible stuff. But none of that has been found in Jerusalem. You would think there'd be some evidence of this massive metropolitan area with all these massive buildings um, in Jerusalem, but there's really nothing. The really the earliest the archaeological record we see of anything going on in Jerusalem is, again, the 6th century, which is after the Babylonian exile. The, the story is that they, they, they left Arabia, they were exiled to Iraq, they were freed, and only then did they go to Israel, to, to Jerusalem. And, and that's when we start seeing an archaeological record of of, of um, any kind of significant settlement there. So that's one argument, is the archaeological one. Um, secondly, um, is the story of the Queen of Sheba, as I mentioned, this, this thing called the Kibra Nagast, which is the, the book that recounts the history of Ethiopia, and it tells the story of Menelik fleeing from Jerusalem with his advisors, uh, with the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where things get interesting, because the Kibranagas is very specific about the route that they took. It says that they left Jerusalem, they went to Gaza, they went over to Egypt, they went south, 
they crossed something called the the Brook of Egypt, and they ended up back home. Well, if, if you look at and all this took only a couple of days. And if you look at a map, you say, well, that's just impossible. The route doesn't make sense, and the timing doesn't make sense. They would have had to have covered a trip that normally takes nine days in a single day. And in fact, the Kiber and the Gosh recognizes that, and the way they get around it is they say that, that the angels came and helped Menelik flee, and they, they actually flew, magic carpets, they flew, because otherwise the story doesn't make any sense. But if you look at the story through the eyes of Jerusalem being in Arabia and not in Jerusalem as we know it today, then the story in the Kiber and the Gosh makes perfect sense, because they go from Jerusalem, we'll call that in Arabia, they go to Gaza, Turns out there's another Gaza, just like in America, every state has a Springfield and every you know every town has an mm-hmm. Elm Street, whatever. The, the names are reused often. So you go from Jerusalem to Gaza, and then from Gaza to something called Mezrin. Remember earlier I said they went from Jerusalem to Gaza to Egypt. Well, Mezrin is the Middle Eastern name for Egypt. So there's a Mezrin in, in Arabia. And then you cross the Brook of Egypt, this time going across to Ethiopia, as opposed to going from Ethiopia back to Arabia, which is what, if you if you look at the Kibra Nagas and you and you follow the path, the it was starting in traditional Jerusalem, they actually end up crossing back into Arabia when they're done, which makes absolutely no sense. So there's two major problems with with the description. If you look at the traditional Jerusalem, one, the timing doesn't work, and two, the route makes no sense. They don't end up where they're supposed to be. But if you put Jerusalem in Arabia, the timing makes sense. One day takes one day to get there. One day's travels one day of time, and you end up back in Ethiopia as opposed to back on the other side of the Red Sea in Arabia. So the Kibra Nagas really supports this idea Jerusalem is in Arabia, not in Israel. So those two arguments, and then the, the last, there's a sort of third argument. When this came out, when this book came out in, in the Arab world, uh, researchers wanted to go to Arabia to check out this area to see if there was any evidence of Solomon's temple, the, the, the castles, the, the, the palaces, the judiciary centers, all this stuff. Well, the Saudi Arabian government got wind of this and said, ah, and they immediately sent bulldozers down and bulldozed the entire area so that there was no evidence of anything because they realized it was a hot potato. They they probably didn't know whether it was true or not, but the one thing they didn't want was having a tug of war between the Arab world and Israel over this land. And the last thing they wanted to be was put in the middle of another Middle Eastern hot potato. So they just bulldozed everything. So um, so that so that's sort of been floating around for a while, and, and uh, it took me a while to, to really sink my teeth into it. I was asked by a few people not to do it because it's potentially pretty inflammatory. But the evidence is is pretty compelling. Um, I even went so far as to look back at the at the the, the recounts of the of the Babylonian um, uh, occupation. So the the, Bab- the story is the Babylonians in the sixth century came across and captured Jerusalem and enslaved the Jews and brought them back to Iraq. Um, so I looked at that that war that that campaign, and of course it only makes sense. This theory only makes sense if the Babylonians not only took modern Jerusalem, but they also captured the Jerusalem in Arabia, right? If not, then there's no way they would have enslaved the Jews and brought them back. And sure enough, they did. They they, they marched all the way uh, west 
to um, to the Mediterranean and then headed south and, and captured a whole rim of Arabia, including where scholars argue the actual Jerusalem is. So that part of the story checked out as well. I was surprised because I thought, aha, I'm, I'm going to prove this thing wrong. But no, um, that, that part worked out as well. So there's some interesting, uh, again, we're back to the evidence. The evidence indicates that this is a possibility. Long answer. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, no, it, it, it's you know, very compelling information, and the 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 map in the uh, book is uh, worth noting. And and uh, you know, you have a photo of um, the. St. George Church at La Labella. La Labella, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and yeah, you know, a lot of our uh, listeners are, are you know, probably remember seeing it on Ancient Aliens. It's the church below ground. Uh, I think that place is really uh, cool. Yeah. So, so what you what what. You, What's going on there is sort of more evidence that that the Templars knew something was going on, okay, that they figured out something was going on with this whole Jerusalem and Arabia thing because they went they kept going back to Ethiopia and trying to you know look around, they befriended the Ethiopians, they built these fascinating uh churches underground stone churches that were shaped like Templar crosses including one in, like you just said, Lalibela. And so, and then, and then even after the Templars uh, were put down, the Portuguese, the Knights of Christ, uh, which were sort of the successors and in interest to the Templars, um, they, they went back a few times as well. But a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on in Ethiopia. The Ark of the Covenant, we think, is there. I mentioned that earlier in the story that, you know, mm-hmm. Menelik took the Ark of the Covenant. But also... Um, Evidence that the Templars thought in another area of Ethiopia there was other potential evidence. And again, I think I think what the Templars were doing, and I can't prove this, is that they were in Ethiopia looking for a for the Ark of the Covenant. That makes sense. But b also evidence of this whole story that you know the Queen of Sheba and Menelik and all this, but that the original Jerusalem might have been in Arabia and not in Israel as we know it today. Okay, so you know, one of your uh, settings is at this uh, subterranean St. George Church. You know, you, you, know, you also take us to uh, Chart Cathedral uh, for the statue of right. So she. So she, ba- think about this again. These these are more little little pieces of evidence. So Chart Cathedral. Mm-hmm. Um, one of these Gothic cathedrals in France, uh, built by the Templars. So again, in, you know, in my mind, <laughs> the Templars know everything because they, you know, they were they were the most powerful entity in Europe for a couple hundred years. And the reason they acquired so much knowledge, they went to the Middle East. Uh, they were sort of the first Europeans coming out of the Dark Ages to go travel to the Middle East. This is under the guise of the Crusades, of course. But while they were there, they befriended a lot of the local people. They learned a lot. They you know, they didn't just come and go. They stayed. 
Um, while they were there, they, they would have become privy to many of, much of the knowledge that had been lost to Europe. So anyway, so they, they knew the secret. Um, at Chartres Cathedral, which was built during the medieval time period, uh, if not built by the Templars, largely influenced by the Templars and their supporters, one of the statues that, that lines the outer perimeter of the cathedral is a statue of the Queen of Sheba. And again, why, she's not Christian, you know, why, why would she be featured um, in a Catholic church? She was, she was a pagan. She, you know, she may have converted or, or considered converting when she married Solomon, but probably not. There's no evidence of that. At best, she was Jewish, but there's no reason she was Christian. No way. And yet, there she is. And again, the question is, what, what did the Templars know about her? Is there something about her story that ties into the story of Mary Magdalene? There's something going on there. And so I get into that in my book a little bit. But these are the kinds of clues. These are, these are We talked earlier about anomalies. Having the Queen of Sheba on display in a Catholic cathedral makes no sense. All right, so why? Right. What are the possibilities? We, we have a mystery, and now it's our job to figure out what's going on. And so I come up with one possible theory. Yeah, it's also uh, interesting looking at some of these uh, different churches, the St. George uh, in Ethiopia, uh, it's, you know, Christian church, you get you know, Christian church in uh, France that you were just uh, discussing with, um, you know, some uh, – statuary that needs some explaining um it, it, you know you all you know throughout you know, almost all your books you have probably some reference to the temple of solomon and you know, the famous uh tunnels underneath the um temple and you also get these basically tunnels under Oak Island as well, where you know, maybe uh, Covenant was hidden for a while. Other uh, uh, treasures from the Holy Land, uh, but you, know, you do uh, discuss the uh, evidence. Uh, from Oak Island, like the uh, uh, coconut fibers. Um, right. So, all right. So, so what I'm trying to do. So, you know, the Oak Island mystery. Um, I think I think we've all watched the Curse of Oak Island TV show. I, I was like, I've missed an episode, and uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that starting up again this year, and hoping they're actually going to hit the pay dirt. But um, the, the the thing about it to me is. Um, you know, again, let's let's dig deeper and look at some of the evidence. So, there are two major pieces of evidence that, that I think tie this back to the Templars. One is that um, let me back up for a second because um, one of the, the the theories about Oak Island is that the treasure was buried uh, underground and that the the, the burial vaults were booby trapped. So that every time someone dug down to get the treasure, uh, flood tunnels would flood those 
burial chambers and basically prevent anyone from getting to them. And the way these flood tunnels worked was down at the beach near one end of the island, there are something called box drains that lead to to tunnels that lead to the burial chambers. And these box drains are protected from getting clogged up by a, a layer of coconut fiber. Now, of course, we're up in Nova Scotia, so there's no coconuts that are native to it. So one of the questions is, whoever built this, these flood tunnels, these box drains, where did they get the coconuts from? They must have come from someplace, some kind of tropical uh, area to have coconuts with them. So, again, we're back to the Templars who were spending, at that time, a lot of time in Ethiopia. We just talked about it, and there were coconuts in Ethiopia at the time, by the way. Uh, but these, these coconut fibers, not only uh, as part of the show, but also going back um, 20 or 30 years, uh, let's see, let me give you, in the early 1990s, uh, 93, uh, and, and 1990, 1990, 1993 in particular, these coconut fibers were sent off to uh, a laboratory to be carbon dated. And three different dates came back, two back in the 1990s and one more recently. Um, but they all come back in the 12th century, 1180, 1130, 1185. Um, and this ties into one of the theories, and, and Zena Halpern is a researcher who um, many of your listeners may, may recognize her name. She wrote a book um, called The Templar Mission to Oak Island and Beyond. And in that book, there is a map which um, uh, talks about the possibility that the Templars may have visited Oak Island in right around the 1179-1180 time period. So those carbon dating of those coconut fibers, those dates fit in really nicely with Zena's date uh, and her maps talking about a, a Templar mission, uh, again, first to Oak Island and then to the Catskills around the time of 1180. Um, and in addition, uh, the during the filming of, of Oak Island, one of the things that came up uh, on the TV show is they found a lead cross uh, on the island and that lead cross was also dated to the 12th century. So we have, this, again, a cluster of dates, the, carb, the coconut fibers and the lead cross going back to the 12th century. So who in the 12th century would have been building flood tunnels, carrying lead crosses? Um, you know, who, who had the technology to do this kind of thing? And really the only candidate at that during that time period would have been the Templars. They were at the height of their power. They had a fleet of ships. Uh, they were um, excellent navigators. They had access to ancient navigational charts and maps. I think it's entirely possible they would have crossed the Atlantic, uh, probably um, in search of some kind of safe haven because uh, they suspected, and their suspicions ended up being proven correct, that at some point the church would turn on them and that they would need some kind of safe haven, which I, I think is why they first came to America with, with some of their treasures. Um, but I get into all this in the book, but again, it all gets back to the factual evidence, which is the carbon dating of the coconut fibers, the dating of the lead cross, and, and this map um, that, that Zena produced, um, which talks about um, a um, let me get the exact language here, Mark. I don't know if you have it in front of you, but I can pull it up. The uh, the, the this uh, in French, there's a spot on the map called the Vault Beneath the Earth, um, which 
would which would indicate that there may actually be a treasure buried underneath uh, a spot on that map. So I use all that and weave it together, and you know, along with the, all the all the Sheba, the Queen of Sheba stuff, and the mm-hmm. is Jerusalem in Arabia, and that all winds together and ends up with uh, I think a really fun story. The, um, the Sheba's Revenge I think is a really fun, um, interesting historically uh, story. And with um, settings like Solomon's Temple, uh, and you know, you can go back to uh, you know Treasure Templari, where you have all these you know lists of all the. Uh, you know, possible uh, artifacts that have been uh, with uh, that. That was the one the Nazis were looking for uh, yeah. for, for the yeah. artifacts. But but all all that stuff's right uh, right there in you know, uh, the Bible, uh, you know, the Old Testament. It's, it's you know uh, they uh, the you know the writers list everything. It's right there. We talk about everything. Talk about the the uh, spear of destiny or oh all that, yeah, yeah. All, so yeah so so right so this goes back to the question what what is the Templar treasure what what was it that the Templars found when they were digging underneath the Temple of Solomon in the early parts of the 1100s so you know Templars mm-hmm. went yeah. over to Jerusalem around 1120 give or take and they spent like. Ten years, basically just digging under the Temple of Solomon, the, the, the stables, the horses' stables under the Temple of Solomon, and then whatever they found made them almost instantly incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful. So, what was it? Did they find treasure? Did they find religious artifacts? Did they find the Ark of the Covenant? Did they find the Holy Grail? Did they find ancient writings that gave the secrets of Christianity? They used to blackmail the church. Um, did they find all those things? I mean, it's a number of different possibilities. The Spear of Destiny. I mean, who knows what it might have been that they found, but whatever it was, something they found, and it made them really powerful, really wealthy, really quickly. And then I think it was that same thing that eventually, 200 years later, the church said, you know, you know too much. You're too powerful. You're too wealthy. And you've been hanging this over our head for too long. We're getting tired of being blackmailed. You guys discovered something about Christianity that that's not part of our orthodoxy, not part of our dogma. We're afraid you're going to tell people, you guys believe stuff we don't believe in, maybe that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. Don't know. Something. And the church said, enough. We're done with you guys. And on Friday the 13th of October, unlucky Friday the 13th, 1307, they rounded up all the Templars and, and put them on trial and they outlawed them. And, but they, and they tried to raid the, the, the treasury in Paris, but but the Templars had notice of this, and the night before, they spirited all their treasures off to the coast, uh, La Rochelle on the western coast of France. The fleet sailed, and no one's quite sure where it went. Scotland, perhaps, and then off someplace else. And so maybe their treasures left and ended up in America for safekeeping. And that's where a lot of the, sort of the legends of Oak Island come in, you know, did, it, did, did they bury it there to keep it away? At that point, of course, no one really knew how to get to America. So the, the, it, was, it was out of reach 
of the Vatican, and that may have been why the Templars brought their stuff over here. But they may have done it even earlier, according to the evidence that I just talked about, the, the coconut fiber and the lead cross. They may have been over here as early as 1180 or so, getting ready for what they saw as the inevitable conflict with the Vatican. You know, what, for you know, portions of your book, um, you really don't have to uh, invent uh, storylines. You know, the Old Testament just basically gives you uh, an inventory of all the uh, artifacts that were in the Temple of Solomon. You just kind of just weave them into difference, uh, you know, where you want to go with them. But, you know, the artifacts are, are already mentioned. Yeah, and, you know, I'm doing that again, Mark. The, again, the, the Old Testament is like a, a gift that keeps on giving because there's so many obscure passages in there that people just don't know yeah. about. And not just the Old Testament, but something called the Talmud, which is basically the compilation of the the teachings of the leading Jewish rabbis during the Middle Ages. So it's basically a commentary on the Old Testament, the Talmud. And the Talmud goes into into a lot of detail, not a lot, into some detail about something called the Shamir, S-H-A-M-I-R. And the legend is that when, when God told Solomon to build the Temple of Solomon, he told Solomon, it's a temple of peace and therefore... I do not want you using metal tools because I'm worried that some of those tools may have at one point been weapons and that were then beat down into tools. And because it's a temple of peace, we don't want that. So you have to figure out a way how to build this temple without using any metal tools. Well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to split stone? It was marble and granite and whatever. How are you going to split stone without without metal tools? And so Solomon... Um, had heard of something called the Shamir, which was a magic uh, stone-cutting worm. <laughs> and he captured the demon Asmodeus, who he had heard knew where this worm was, and he captured Asmodeus, and he basically um, uh, convinced, you know, he pried the information out of Asmodeus. Asmodeus told him where to find the worm. Solomon sent his guys out to get the worm. They brought the worm back, and the worm is what he used to build the temple. Uh, again, without metal tools. And so this Shamir is something I'm writing about now. That's, that's my, my next novel. But again, this all goes back to stuff that was stories of building the temple. Um, in modern-day Israel, when, they, when, the, when the Orthodox Jews talk about rebuilding the temple, and they want to rebuild it the same way it was built the first time, same specifications and same, uh, same restrictions, they uh, want to find the Shamir, it's lost, by the way, to history. Hmm. So they so they can rebuild it again. So, it, of course, in my story, you know, the, the mystery is: have we have we found the Shamir? Is the Shamir missing? Can we find it again? Um, people want to find it for various reasons. Partly because it may be, you know, is it, is it radioactive? Is it a laser? Is it some kind of alien technology? Or is it really just something that uh, God created as part of? Um, there, there was a time period after the sixth day and before the seventh day when he rested, where God invented or created things that um, sort of a, a catch-all, um, things, things that, that, that really can't be explained in other ways, 
Um, let me see if I can find some of them here. There's like 14 of them, I think. Uh, it's like one of them foot Mothman. <laughs> seriously, one of them was like um, iron tongs because that, that because one can't forge tongs in fire without first having a pair of tongs to hold them with. So therefore, okay. God must have created the first pair of tongs to give the humans so they can make more. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. I, I, I like it. Um, yeah. So like. There are like twelve different things that 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 um, manna from heaven. That's a common one. Um, let me see here. Uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, Staff of Moses. The Shamir. That. Anyway, so these are things. There's a bunch of these are things that God created on the sixth day before He rested on the seventh day um, that can't otherwise be explained. But oh, the the, gra- the grave the the burial grave of Moses, because Moses went off and died on his own, right? Well, he couldn't have buried himself, so God had to dig his grave for him. Okay, that kind of stuff. So stuff that can't otherwise be explained in the Old Testament, the Talmud has this list of things that, that God must have created between the sixth and seventh days. Strange list. Combination of mundane and extraordinary. Um, demons. Is another oh, I, one of the demons. I, I, well, I, I, that's a perfect topic for Nightlight. It's, it's 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 interesting to sit around one night, like you know, back in college, having a couple you know, a couple of beers, saying like, "Well, how do you, how, who made the first pair of tongs?" Like, okay, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, it sort of makes sense because you need a pair of tongs to hold the tongs to put them in the fire. Otherwise, how do you put them in the fire? You know, so. Okay. But uh, 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 just let me know before. Uh, yeah, you call George and uh, say you want to be on his show. <laughs> of course I will. The uh, the uh, the ram that appeared to Abraham, telling him not to sacrifice Isaac. That's another another one of those God things God created on that, that sixth day. So the whole whole fun list. But the Shamir is a really cool, like a magic little worm that that, that built Solomon's temple. So like you said, the Solomon's temple is a gift that keeps on giving. Everything because the temple, of course, and the, the name the the Templar name is comes from the Temple of Solomon. That's where the Templar. That's what the Templars are named after. So so of course. You know, that's where they started, that's where they lived, that's where whatever they became powerful, that's where they found it. And, uh, you know, so poor, well, the poor you know, fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, that's their name. Okay, you know, one of the things I like about your uh, uh, canon of books is all the contrasts that. Uh, you create, you know, like you know, we're talking about the um, tunnels under the temple and tunnel under uh, Oak Island, um, and um, the uh, Ser- Serpent Oracle. You know, we're talking about the uh, Hill Kumara and the um, hilltop um, fortress in. Uh, Ohio, where you have, uh, you know, some some of this, uh, you know, a few scenes there. Uh, you know, obviously there. You know, we already went through uh, all the snake imagery around the world, and you have the eels in uh, uh, the Nostophilia. 
actually ah, got some go. notes. Yeah, because I, yeah, yeah, I kept forgetting the, uh, uh, you know, a uh, word on another, you know, that word on another show. But uh, yeah, so yeah, the eels swimming out to where Atlantis um, uh, was, or you know, was, in, and then in the middle, you know, like yeah, in the, in the sea, the, uh, the Sargasso Sea, yeah, in the middle, in, uh, off the coast of. Uh, in the Atlantic, in, in the Atlantic, basically, yeah. So the idea that the yeah. eels swim out there from America and from Europe, and they meet to spawn out there, uh, which is nostophilia, like you said, it's a the compulsion to return to their native habitat, their original homeland. The eels want to go home, and they, so they swim back out to the. They're freshwater eels, but they swim out to the middle of the ocean. And the idea is that at some point, that there was land there that was fresh water above the ocean, and they lived in lakes there. And eventually, at some point, those that land collapsed and the eels swam off. But they go back there every year to spawn. Um, Nostophilia, as you said, Mark. But yeah, so I had eels, yeah. I had snakes. Now I got worms. Yeah, I got yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and, and crawly things. Y- yeah, y- y- yeah, you know, the uh, uh, shamirs. So, uh, so, yeah. You know, what uh, what do you have to say about? All, all these kind of uh, cryptozoological creatures <laughs> and other creatures out of folklore. It's, it's, so, it, so, it, it, it's the running theme. Yeah, so, you know, again, I I, I write about what, um, what I find. So, as an example, at, at Roslyn Chapel in um, – let me just find it. You know, in uh, in Scotland, of course, the famous Roslyn Chapel, um, there is something called the Apprentice Pillar, and mm-hmm. I think most of your listeners are probably familiar with that. It's you know, it's probably the most prominent thing as you go in there. It's very ornate, um, but the bottom of this, or at the base, there's a whole bunch of intertwined uh, worms. Um, that sort oh, of really? circle the, the base, which people don't really pay much attention to. Their eyes go up, but um, you know, again, so is, is that sort of a, a is that sort of a nod? The, the, the probably not time to get into it too deep, but the, the in, in Freemasonry, there's a whole story about um, how the Shamir plays an important part in some of the Masonic initiation. Uh, uh, sorry. First degree rituals, okay. The snake was the Shamir with Hiram Abiff and whatnot, and and the apprentice pillar relates the story of Hiram Abiff, and so it may be that those worms uh, on the on the pillar at Rosin Chapel are a reflection of that Masonic degree ritual work. So that may be what's going on with that. That the worms are a reflection or a symbol symbol of the Shamir. So that's maybe what's going on there. So you know, it's not so much that I'm looking for this stuff, but there it is. You know, what again? Why in a Christian chapel, which is what Roslyn Chapel is, why do we have worms? All right, there's there's a mystery. I mean, it's not the type of thing usually you see in a church. So what's going on there? Um, these are the questions you have to ask. And now now we're looking for answers. And I always say I I may I may not have it right, but there is a story behind those worms, and I'm offering one possibility, and I'm happy to be proven wrong, but someone else has got to come up with a story that explains them, and it can't be, oh, they're just worms. That's not good enough. There's a reason there's worms there. What's the story behind it? Yeah, so um, 
I think this has been a, a terrific lead-in to a show we'll be doing eh, about six weeks or so on um, John Hughes' The Healing Practices of the Knights Templar and Hospitaller. And, Hospitalier. Hospitalier. Hospitalier, okay. And yeah, he, he does talk about uh, about you know uh, we will be getting into uh, uh, Muslim Arabs who at the time would have been considered the most advanced medical practitioners in the world. Uh, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Arab, yeah, Arab medical science had already been established for more than fifteen hundred years, and yeah, you know, the, the Crusaders just had. Well, or you know, most of the people you know, uh, you know, back back home in Europe uh, had no idea how to you know, cure basic uh, things. But you know, when when the you know Crusaders came back, I mean, you know, just a wealth of uh, knowledge, and it's really interesting when you and some of the other uh, you know. Uh, Templar scholars or guests, it, uh, it, it, it really becomes a fascinating subject of how much yeah, they really to, accomplished. Yeah, so you know, we we always think today. I know we're getting near the end here, Mark. We think today is being the Arab world is being a little bit backward, and and you know, but back then, Europe was in the dark ages and, and had very little knowledge or education. Most of the knowledge and education was in the Arab world back then, and so when the, when the Templars and other Crusaders went to the Middle East, um, they learned a lot. They brought a lot back, and that was sort of the roots of the Enlightenment period in Europe. Had it not been for the knowledge that was acquired during the during that time period, Europe may never have gotten out of the Dark Ages. Um, and the Church is perfectly happy with people being ignorant because, again, that meant instead of going to the doctor to get cured. You went to church and prayed for a cure, and you put money in the contrib- in the in, you know in the in, in the contrib- what's, it, what's it called the collection uh, box, um, you know. So they were happy with that arrangement. They were happy with people being basically ignorant and and just praying for what they wanted because that kept them in business. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, that that was part of the issue with the Templars as well. The Templars were interested in in science and learning and understanding and knowledge, and again the church didn't necessarily want people to be acquiring uh, forbidden knowledge. It goes back to that. We don't want people being too smart. We like them being like sheep, just following what we say. Mm-hmm. Time to say okay. goodnight, yeah. Mark. Uh, uh, okay, there's uh, the the voice. Okay, so <laughs> thanks, David. Uh, check My out pleasure. David's books on a- Amazon. We'll, we'll see everyone next week with uh, Max Hawthorne. Good night, everyone. Thank you, Mark. Good night.